This is a question that came to us from Hugo Dennett. So, hey, Hugo, I'm not going to identify the question as for every question, but Hugo, this is an extra special question for Hugo. Um, his question is, does Jesus look after us or do angels look after us? So, Doug. I researched this. Excellent. Um, great question, Hugo. It was probably the hardest question of the lot. Uh, here's what I was thinking. Like, the Bible's full of stories about angels. So, we've got to do something with them. So, what I figure is, what I'd say is that um, Jesus looks after us, but he uses the angels to do it, often uses the angels to, to look after us. In fact, there's a verse. I looked this up. Uh, Hebrews 1, 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit in, um, inherit eternal salvation? So I'm kind of thinking that tells me that Jesus cares for us by sending angels to care for us on his behalf. So I'll let mum and dad translate that into English for you. <laughs> uh, Michael Kamina, do either of you want to add anything? To... No, I was so just going to say Jesus looks after everything including angels, but sometimes maybe sends angels to help us. That's my, what you said. Yeah, my wife Rosemary believes that her father only lived to his great age that he did because of protecting angels when he drove. <laughs> so is it okay to pray for protecting angels? Yeah, and can they, find us, can they find us a car park? Yeah, that's... <laughs> yes, Rosemary says yes. Um, <laughs> I think something really important here, because we can... Like, God does send angels... To, to do things. They're his servants. They're his, his workers. Um, and so I think I've heard sometimes people unhelpfully um, pick or look to angels instead of Jesus. And that's a huge problem because Jesus is the boss. He's the one who sends them. So if we are understanding that the angels are his workers and his servants and they answer to him and he's ultimately the one caring for us, then absolutely we can ask and expect God to send his workers, his servants to do things. Are you going to add anything, Doug? Look like well, just that this is a thing we often forget in our secular age is there is a spiritual realm. And uh, we often assume there's nothing going on beyond what we see in the secular world, in the material world. But the reality is there is a spiritual realm and we interact with it. Yeah, so I think I, um, I only realised a few years ago how secular my reading of the Bible was, how much mm. I ignored the spiritual realm. And so when you're reading a gospel, you just want the Jesus doing stuff because he's, well, he's come out of the heavenly realm and he's doing cool stuff, but you want the history and the teachings and the how to live. But so much of the gospels, we're going to do Matthew in term one this year, is Jesus going toe to toe with the spiritual realm and you can't flatten it out and still have a coherent story. I think that's true for the whole Bible, that the heavens and the earth are kind of introduced in chapter one of the Bible and they're there at the end, and the whole story is about how they relate to one another and how Jesus is a pivotal figure in that. I think one of the issues we've got is the Bible has lots of different heavenly beings, and we just use angels as a kind of catch-all. So when we did Revelation last year, and we are talking about cherubim and seraphim, um, they seem to be interesting but distinct slightly in their roles. Uh, and then you've got these figures throughout the Old Testament called the sons of God, who seem to be heavenly beings and so part of the answer to Hugo's question seems to be like in Deuteronomy 32 there's some translation stuff going on where 
it looks like God gives all the nations who aren't Israel to other divine beings to be their kind of possession. And so spiritual beings are responsible in some ways for those other nations. And in the Psalms, in Psalm 91, the psalmist um, says that God puts his angels to look after people who seek refuge in him, which does, again, have this concept of angels ministering to people and looking after us. And then you see that in the temptation of Jesus and that psalm kind of gets fulfilled when God's angels attend to Jesus in the desert after he's been tempted by Satan. So that kind of cosmic stuff is happening the whole way through the story of the Bible. And I think where Doug lands in Hebrews 1, that idea that we don't just get angels kind of looking after us as people from the nations, but we get God and we get uh, the King Jesus looking after us through his kind of heavenly servants, which is part of the good news of the Bible and something we've kind of got to get our heads around because we don't see the world that way with our eyes. Anyone got anything else to add on that question? Oh, I just wanted to add, to come back to the, what I think the essence of Hugo's question is, was maybe who do we look to for help? And I'd say look to Jesus. He's, he's the boss. Yeah, the boss of the angels and the boss of us. Yep. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Hugo. Do you have any more? If you have any more questions, you can come and ask one of these guys at morning tea time. Uh, next question is about the bit of writing that gets called the Apocrypha, uh, the extra books in the Catholic Bible. And so the question is, why does the Catholic Bible have those extra books? And who gets to decide that stuff? Um, Kamina. This is like the bit between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yep. Tell us about it. Um, okay, I'm going to try and oversimplify because it's very complicated. So I apologize for the stuff I'll leave out. The Catholic Bible has seven extra books. Um, they're sometimes called intertestamental books because they talk about stuff that happened between the Old and the New Testament. Um, they're great. It's fine to read them. They've got some interesting historical and cultural stuff and can inform our reading of the Bible. Um, the reason that Protestants don't accept them officially as part of the Bible um, is just because their origins are less certain and certainly not as old as the stuff in the Old Testament. So I think to oversimplify what it comes down to is that um, Protestants rely on a version of the Old Testament that was that we've got in Hebrew, um, whereas we only have these other books in Greek, making and we know that they were written later. And so, when the Catholics and the Protestants split, the Protestants had this one of their big, big concerns was making sure that. Um, everything we had wasn't just from human tradition, but uh, was divinely inspired and was uh, based on very, very old tradition. And so one of the criteria for including stuff was that we had um, kind of attestations from it from different places that agree with each other. So we picked the stuff that was, uh, that we had Hebrew and Greek traditions to kind of attest to witness to it rather than the ones. So the ones that we only had in Greek were kind of considered um, a little less authoritative maybe. And so we didn't include them. Uh, that's a really simple version. I feel I've left a lot out and maybe, maybe others can fill in the details or correct anything I said that was not helpful. Oh, maybe about how, who decides, could you talk about how, how, what, how we get our canon and who decides that? No, you don't want to. 
It's still your question, Kamina. <laughs> <laughs> Just that there's a lot of criteria and people argued about this stuff at a couple of different councils. Um, lots of Christian thinkers and leaders got together in the times of the very early church and had big conversations about what we should decide with scripture. And there's a bunch of different criteria. One of them might be that it's attested in multiple places, uh, that, that it agrees with other parts of scripture, that we know where it came from. We can see how old it is. Lots of criteria like that to make sure that we feel really happy with the stuff that's in the Bible, that we can really trust it. That's very simplified. Yeah, who decides what's in the Bible? The, the theological answer is God. He's the one who inspired the Bible and actually he, I would say he superintends the process whereby firstly the Jewish tradition and then the Christian tradition after it discerns which books were inspired. It's a little bit different to saying the church didn't make the canon, church didn't decide this book needs to be scripture. It's more an act of discerning, recognising what God had already done. That's a kind of a technical theological answer, but it's really been through the, through the, uh, the Jewish tradition, then the Christian tradition of, of the councils, as Kamina said, the councils and different uh, groups along the way agreeing, yeah, the, these books have been uh, inspired by God along the way. But ultimately, it's in God's hands to inspire, to preserve and then to lead the church by the Holy Spirit to discern which books were inspired. Um, I think there's, there's a question, kind of two questions in the future that might help give us a rule of thumb for how we sense inspiration, I think. But uh, I think the, the other thing that Kamina said in terms of where human councils got together, the criteria weren't hidden and secret. So we can read all these other books and see why they were rejected, because the, the reasoning's there. And we can read these kind of extra canonical books and find some benefit in them, but we read them still doing that discerning thing of what's God doing through history, through the periods that these books describe, and uh, do these have the same weightiness to them as, as the books of the Bible? And I think lots of people over a long time have decided they don't have the same weightiness. That doesn't mean there's not some cool stuff in those apocryphal books. And there's actually... Heaps and heaps of books that were considered um, and rejected that you can read and you can see why they were rejected because they were uh, teaching heresy or you can see why they were rejected for other reasons. And if you want to get into this a bit more, there's a podcast that I've really enjoyed called Apocrypals, which is two <laughs> atheist comic book writers reading books of the Bible and they read them with respect and it's really fascinating because they're really good at story, but they also read the Apocrypha. And so I've learned heaps about all these stories that didn't make the cut from that podcast, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so if this is an area that you're interested in, there are good resources out there for, for doing some more reading and thinking. Um, Can I throw a curly question to yeah. Kamina? So, Kamina, in your introduction, you said that uh, the Song of Songs is a sexy book that never talks about, that never mentions God. So why do you think it got in the canon of Scripture? Oh, question without notice. Oh, I can do this. I can do this if you want me to, yeah, with, with permission. Um, I think it got into scripture because it's about, uh, because it's, um, oh, how do I not use this word? It's, it is showing 
Solomon is the villain in the Song of Songs and what Solomon did with his heart reverberated through all of Israel's history because Solomon's love life, his partners caused him to turn away from God and that caused um, Israel basically to turn away from God, which indirectly led to them being exiled. So I think the Song of Songs is a really powerful picture of what love should look like and it has a warning, don't do what Solomon did. That's why it's in the canon because what you do with your body and your heart affects what you do with your relationship with God. If you're the king of Israel, that's pretty important. There you go. Great answer. Nice one. Any other questions from the panel to other members of the panel? (laughs) Um, I've got a question for Matt. (laughs) Are you knitting a Muppet? What is that? That's beautiful. We'll talk about it later. I'm very distracted by it. (laughs) (laughs) Matt's on the panel next week, so you can um, send some questions through to him next week. All right. Uh, I think we've kind of adequately answered this one, so let's move on to the next one. Uh, This is moving from intertestamental to New Testamental, uh, and it's a question about two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that both have genealogies for Jesus, so that's the family tree of Jesus, and the question is, they're different, why? Uh, How do they work, and then how does Jesus' lineage work if they both go back to Joseph, but he's not biologically Joseph's son? Um, and they're linked back to David, but he gets called the son of David. So, uh, Mick, do you want to have a go at launching us off on this one? Uh, I don't have a helpful big answer, so I'm going to pass to someone else pretty quickly. Um, but I will start with saying that we, we need to understand that Jewish culture and the way they structured their society and their families quite differently to the way that we're thinking in 21st century Australia. Uh, so when we say, oh, but they weren't biologically related, therefore there's something kind of um, second rate about that. I don't think that's the way that they were thinking with Joseph as uh, Jesus' father. So even though we'd happily say there wasn't biology linking them, maybe they're not blood family, uh, the way they were looking at adoption, um, Joseph was very much Jesus' father uh, in, that, in that community. His uh, bloodline, his family, his uh, ancestors who go back to David, that's very much Jesus' line. And there's nothing second rate about that. Um, It very much counts. Mm. So uh, it it made an awful lot of sense uh, in Jewish society to still trace that line from Jesus back to David. Um, Yeah. So, but I won't I won't press into the details of why the two are different. Yeah, I can a little bit maybe. So yeah, what Mick said was so incredibly helpful. We need to understand that. there are certain cultural factors influencing Jewish understanding of family that are completely alien to us. So we just look at the two. So in in Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, there are two genealogies of Jesus, and they're quite different. Um, two family trees of Jesus, and they're quite different. And the main um, kind of the linchpin of that issue, I guess, is that in one genealogy it says that Joseph's father was Jacob. And then in the other one, it says that Joseph's father was Heli. That's how I'm pronouncing that because I'm a Hebrew scholar. Um, and that seems to be a problem. How, can, how come Joseph's dad is listed differently in each one? Uh, did the Christians just make these up to make it look like Jesus was descended from David? What's going on? Um, there's a couple of different plausible theories. Uh, I think probably the most popular one or one that makes a lot of sense is that, and again, this relies on the fact that um, the in Hebrew culture, the family line, the father's line was so important, it's quite possible that um, Joseph didn't have any, uh, so, sorry, that um, uh, Mary's father adopted Joseph as his son because Mary 
didn't have any male siblings to carry on the family line. So that seems weird to us because you go, you can't adopt your brother, your son-in-law. Well, in Jewish culture, you could, and he would then be his son. So it's it seems likely that the genealogy in Luke actually reflects Mary's line and the genealogy in Matthew reflects uh, Joseph's line, if that makes sense. I don't know if that made sense to anyone. That's But that's one, that's one way to explain the difference. Yes. Um, can I chip back in there? Yeah. Kamina started to show this a little bit, but the genealogies in, in the Bible, so through Hebrew culture as well, they're very much used as part of telling the story, which does not mean that they can just fictionalize or play or mess it up um, mm. in unhelpful ways wherever they want to. But it does mean that you might pick and choose which ones along the line you're mentioning in a specific time or a specific place mm. um, when you're getting across a certain point. So mm. even the fact that um, both of them end somewhere different, one of them goes up to Adam, the son of God, mm. and one of them doesn't, for example. They're kind of getting across different things uh, in these two different books written to slightly different audiences. Mm. Doug, did you have anything to add on this one? While, yeah, while what I'm, I'm catching you while your notes are kind of my notes here. Um, I actually think the genealogies are some of the funnest parts of the Bible, especially the, um, Matthew and, and uh, Luke. I just love the way they do it. I'll take Matthew first. Um, what Matthew does when he sort of starts off with this boring thing, a genealogy, what he's doing, he's just retelling the story of Israel. Hmm. He takes these 14, uh, no, 42 generations, breaks them up into three generations of 14. There's sort of a stylized uh, genealogy. And it's just a, what he's saying in doing that by starting off with a genealogy that begins with a father of the nation, with Abraham, goes to David. Then the, the break between the second and the third group of genealogies is, uh, is, is with a guy called Jeconiah, the king who, who goes into exile in Babylon. What I think Matthew is doing is a couple of things are going on there. One thing I think he's saying is Jesus has come to finish the story, to bring the story of Israel to its goal. And by having the last event in this genealogy, the story of going into exile, what he's saying is, and by the way, Israel, I know you've come back from the, the, out of exile, but really, you're still in exile. And that leads into a whole interesting aspect of the theology of Matthew. But it's, it's the calling of Jesus to bring Israel's exile to an end. So it's basically, this is going to be the story of Jesus completing the story of Israel, the right ending to Israel's story one point. Another point about uh, Matthew's gospel is that along the way, he intrudes for the names of four women. Now, you don't do that in, in a, generally in an Israelite, a Jewish genealogy. So, he inserts the name of four women who are, call it out to me, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and... No. The wife of Uriah. Yeah, it is Bathsheba, but she's not called Bathsheba. She's called the wife of Uriah. A couple of reasons why Matthew might have done that. One might be is because what he's done, he's put into the genealogy of Jesus the names of four Gentiles. The big question for Matthew is at that time is the Jewish Christians are saying, why, what do we do all these Gentiles who are becoming Christians? And I think Matthew is saying, hey, Israel, hey, Jews, look, you've always had uh, Gentiles in your story. In fact, they're in the line of the Messiah himself. So he's setting you up for this whole story. Israel's story is coming to this great conclusion, which will include the inclusion of all the Gentiles in Israel's story, which is why the story of Matthew ends with 
go therefore and make disciples of all Gentiles, of all nations. So I think it's a, it's a great introduction to Matthew's story. There's a whole lot of other things going on with that genealogy, but I won't go into it. Uh, the the other, other one is, is uh, Luke, which is kind of fun. It goes in the opposite direction, goes from Jesus backwards. And I think, I think these guys are right. It's a, um, maybe it's more of a legal genealogy. I don't know. Um, whereas the other one might be more biological. That's not the point. But he runs it backwards and ends up not with, with Abraham, but ends up with Adam. Actually, doesn't end up with Adam. It says, Adam, who was the son of God. Very interesting ending there. Uh, I won't go into that at the end of Luke 3. What's going on there? I think what Luke is doing is saying, oh, this Jesus has come to finish Adam's story. This Jesus is the true human. He's going to do what Adam failed to do. So what happens is in Luke 3, what precedes it is the baptism of Jesus, where he's designated as the Messiah. He's designated actually as the true human. And then we see this genealogy which runs back to Adam. And the next thing that happens is that Jesus goes into the wilderness to, to be tempted by Satan. Wait, that echoes the story of Adam and Eve who were tempted in a garden but failed. But here is the true human tempted in a wilderness but succeeds. So my point is these genealogies, which we kind of brush over, there's a whole lot of really rich theology in them and they're telling us really important stuff about Jesus. Sorry, I took too long. No, I think that's great because I think the two genealogies of Jesus work by telling us a bigger story and... That means they include different details and even different numbers of people. And there's some stylistic stuff there. And we've answered the lineage question. Um, so I think we've, we've answered the question. My take, I think, is similar to the one Camille suggested, that Luke seems to draw on Mary as a source pretty heavily. Uh, in some ways, Luke is Mary's gospel. It's got her song that she sang that he could only have if he spoke to her. Um, so it makes sense that he's done some family history work with Mary as well. So... Um, Excellent. Let's move on to question four. Um, if the Bible is the word of God, but Jesus is the word made flesh, how do they relate to each other? Are there two kinds of word? Mick? Um, I feel like my answer is going to be incomplete again, but I'm happy for other people to jump in and, and fill in all the gaps. But I'm going to talk around it a little bit because uh, I think it's exciting. So throughout the whole Bible, we see God revealing himself to people, making himself known. And he, and he does it right from the start by his word. So he creates the world by his word. Uh, and then he gives the law, that's his word, to show his people what he's like and what they should be like. Uh, and then he sends his prophets and they're his messengers and they bring his message, his word uh, to the world. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus, at the first, he, he kind of plays out like a prophet. He's bringing a message and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And, and he brings God's message, God's word, but it doesn't take too long before we realize that he's, he's a bit different to the other prophets in that he's not just the messenger, he's the message. Everything God has been saying about what he's going to do in the world, everything the prophets were saying about how God is going to uh, make everything new and bring people back to him and fix everything, Jesus is the answer to all that. He's the message that everyone's been talking about. So you get this thing um, in, in Hebrews where there's this kind of little summary of this at the start of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, you could say, okay, maybe he's just the latest prophet. 
But then a verse later, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we get this cool thing how Jesus brings the word of God and Jesus is the word of God. He is the messenger and the message. And in fact, he doesn't just bring the word of God or he doesn't, isn't just the word of God. He is God himself. So there's some pretty cool stuff going on here. We often, um, we often use language in all different ways and that's happening here. Uh, language used in different ways to describe things in different ways that help us understand uh, who Jesus is and what he's doing. Um, and I think that's, that's really, like I said, that, that's incomplete. I'd love someone else to step in and, and fill in some of that. But I think it's really helpful when we get to John and we see here this weird language like the word was with God and the word was what was God and the word became flesh. Uh, and then a bit later in John, Jesus says, if you've seen the father, you've seen me. We just see a lot of threads all kind of coming together. We don't always have, I certainly don't have a really simple one or two sentence answer to explain how all this works. But we certainly see all the threads coming together uh, in ways that I think hold pretty tight. Do either of you have things to add? Took the verse I had. Ah. That's great. Um, I think I just want to add on the last question, or the middle question, how do they relate to each other? Well, that's not the middle question, it's the first question. Um, so back to the question about what gets in the Bible before. I think Jesus gives us a guide to reading the Bible in his ministry. It's not just that he is the word made flesh, but he had a few key moments. And in Matthew, John and Luke, this is expressed in, in different ways. He basically says the Bible is written about him. And so one way to talk about this is that the Bible is God's word fulfilling its purpose to reveal God to us when it reveals Jesus to us. So in Matthew, he says that he's the one who's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, that, that they were kind of anticipating this moment that he would arrive to reveal God to us. Uh, in John, Jesus says that the scriptures that the um, Jews have in the first century are the words that testify about him. And so they become the word in its its fullest and in its achieving of its purpose when they reveal Jesus. And in Luke, in Luke 24, Jesus says that the law, the Psalm of the prophets, the whole Old Testament were written about him or written to tell this story that he was going to arrive and suffer and die and be raised from the dead as the promised king. So one way to think about this is that you can get the words off the page of the Bible and the spirit makes them God's word for you as it does its work in your life but it does that as it points you to Jesus, God's word in the flesh and reveals him to you. Um, there's, there's ways to read bits of the Bible. Like you could go to Job's friend's advice in the Old Testament and you could say, is this God's word? Because some of it's clearly wrong things about God. And so there's got to be a way to read the Bible to make it God's word. And Jesus gives us the guide that it's, we read it as though it's written about him. And so that's how him being the word and the Bible being the word Kind of relate to each other i think they, they integrate um does anyone want to chuck anything in I, I realize i'm straying into your territory doug in terms of how we should read the old testament at that point but um maybe that will come out a little bit in question five uh, what is the big gospel so we've talked at different times uh in different contexts in our church about um wanting a bigger understanding of the gospel than maybe some of us have grown up with and that prompted this question what do we mean when we're talking about this um so it really is i guess a question that's directed to me but i'll throw it to you guys first um does anyone have a an answer to this question 
Rosemary's pointing at Doug. It feels like that's a Dorothy Dixer at that point. But Doug. Actually, I feel like handing it back to Rosemary. <laughs> it's her question. You can't throw it back. Her question. She actually only told me driving down the car that this was her question, and I panicked because <laughs> she told me what the answer is, and I can't remember what it is. So here's the deal. Um, what, what is the, if I ask you, what's the message of the gospel? You will all, as good evangelicals, go to the message of the cross, rightly so. It is the story of the death of our, our Lord on the cross. That is where our, the penalty for our sins is paid. That's the, the basis, that's the basis of our justification, our forgiveness of sins. It's the theology of the atonement that is at the heart and center of the gospel. However, that is not the sum total of the gospel. By big gospel, I think what Rosemary is getting at, and I'm trying to get at too, is there are many more elements in the good news of what Jesus has done. Yes, central is the good news of dealing with the problem of sin, number one, absolutely. But don't stop there and then start thinking about big gospel. Okay, let's just take a couple of topics. Uh, the good news of the incarnation, what's that? Heaven has come down to earth. The man from heaven has come down to earth. What we are talking about there is the merging of heaven and earth. That's a thing that Nathan was talking about that requires us now to start thinking about the implications of the gospel are for the understanding of the existence of a spiritual realm, the angels that we talked about earlier. It also leads us into understanding the good news of the gospel. This is something our tradition has not picked up on. It is about the defeat of the cosmic powers, the dark principalities and powers, Satan and the demons. We don't talk about that. That's part of the good news of the gospel. If we think about that, we might also think about some of the trials we go through, the tribulations we go through, and not just because of sickness and emotional problems, but might also be because of spiritual oppression. Now, I know once you start getting into that, I might start sounding, sounding a little weird and not part of our evangelical tradition, but I think we need to think about these larger categories of thought. We need to think about um, the idea when Jesus comes and the gospel announcement, announcement is the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God is here. What is that? It is the good news that the God of heaven has begun his rule over the earth through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's got all sorts of implications for us in the way that we live, that we are called to submit to the rule of King Jesus. And not just, oh, trust Jesus for your sins and you're good to go. That's true, but you're also called to submission, to name Jesus as Lord. So you start going on after topic after topic. Um, another one would be if you'd ask an Old Testament person, I'll go back to the Old Testament here. The prophets come along, they say, Israel, you need to obey the Lord. You need to be keep the law and they couldn't do it why because their their hearts were hard stony hearts and the prophets look forward to the day when god will come pour out his spirit on his people and soften their hearts so they can be obedient this is why the pentecost is good news the good news is includes not just that your sins have been forgiven but there is a power at work now in you through the spirits outpouring in your lives that real transformation real change is actually possible that's good news that's part of this big gospel. One more, two more. Um, just the whole idea that the Son of God has come and we have been united to the Son. We are sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. That's our new identity. He looks at us. God looks at us in the way that he looks in Jesus. And that's got incredible implications for those of us who are suffering from various traumas, uh, whose sense of uh, humiliation, embarrassment, shame is massive because of all the things that have happened to us. The good news is if you're united to Christ, God looks at you 
as if you're Jesus. That's got incredible implications for the way that you view yourself, the way you live. Um, I could go on. I won't. That's just a hint at some of the ideas as to just some of the implications of the gospel is not just good news for us as sinners. It's good news for us as people who are suffering, people who are traumatized, people who are feeling abused and shamed, all sorts of aspects. The gospel touches every aspect of the human condition. And that's why we need a big gospel, looking at all these different dimensions of it to be able to speak the gospel well into our own lives and the lives of our friends. And I just preached a little sermon and I apologize for that. That's good. Um, Kamina, did you have anything to add if you were asked this question in an elevator? I hadn't actually heard this term. As I don't know where I've been, but... Apologies to the more college graduates in the room. <laughs> um, no, everything that Doug said, but I think the only thing I would add is that um yeah that has and you touched on this it has implications for the way we live not just in obedience but like in knowing the bigness of all that and knowing the freedom that we have in Christ I think when you've been a Christian for a while I mean I still feel young and new to this but I've been a Christian for like 15 years now at least um you know you do sort of get over that oh, okay, well, my sin's forgiven now. Um, there's a lot of life left to live and a lot of implications for living, knowing that your sins are forgiven and knowing that Jesus is Lord and knowing that Jesus has defeated all powers and everything will be brought under him. There's there's just a lot, uh, that, yeah, there's years and years and years of living with that reality and the implications of that. And so, yeah, I'd encourage people to think bigger than just, oh, my sins are forgiven, I'm right with God, full stop, Yeah many people in here who've lived as Christian longer than I have so that's more encouragement to younger people and you new people new mm. Nick um if you didn't yet get enough of what Doug was saying I want to riff on that a bit more okay. um the, the gospel kind of has so many facets to it there's just so much going on uh and yet so often we do and actually I think we can it's legitimate we can like sum it up in sort of one sentence and as long as we don't stop there for our whole lives. It's actually not a bad thing. So I've, I've, I've looked through the New Testament a few times and I've, I've picked out about 10 what I'd call gospel summaries where one of the New Testament writers has kind of summarized the gospel in one, five, 10 verses. I'm just going to share sort of three of them now. I want you to feel how different they are. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That is a good accurate, full representation of the gospel. It's beautiful. There is nothing wrong with what Peter has said there, and he's saying something great about God, something great about us, and he fills that out in the rest of his letter. Now listen to this uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's talking about resurrection in this chapter, uh, and he starts by saying, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. He was buried in, on the third day according to the scriptures. He's raised uh, he appeared to Cephas, then the other apostles, then 500 more people. So where does his gospel start? Uh, where Jesus died for sins? Uh, where does it end? About 40 days later, uh, when he's appeared to a bunch of people, risen from the dead. Death has been defeated. Jesus gives new life. He says, that's me reminding you of the gospel. Covers 40 days in Jerusalem, essentially. Now listen to this one from Ephesians. 
He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then a few verses later, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay, so where does Paul start there? Before creation. Where does he end? At the fulfillment at the end of times. Uh, Does he just cover Jerusalem? No, he's talking about all things in heaven and on earth. And this giant cosmic story he's telling, he's centering it on the cross. So we get this other gospel summary where he shows, no, no, what Jesus did, what, what God has done in Jesus actually is good news for all of creation, for all of heaven and earth, for all time. And again, you could, you could unravel that so far. You could talk about that for so long. And yet that doesn't make what Peter said any less legitimate. What's the gospel? Jesus died for sins to bring you to God. Um, I think that's really great. And as long as we keep reading the whole Bible, as long as we keep talking about all these different things uh, that are part of the gospel, as long as we keep working out all the different parts of our life that are being shaped by Jesus, uh, any one of these things does capture the gospel. And talking to two different people, you might say entirely different sounding things, show different facets of it. um, And they're two parts of the same beautiful gospel. Um. I've got maybe three things I want to add. It might flow out into four. We'll see. Uh, I think part of the nature of this question of what the big gospel is, is recognising that there might be small gospels that we buy into. And that's been a thing that I've been convicted of for myself. But often what I've done is reduce the gospel to why the gospel is good news for me. And so the gospel is good news for me because I'm a terrible sinner and I'm saved by grace through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. That's what brings me into the gospel in a sense. It takes me from being exiled from God to being restored to him. But I think part of the issue with our small thinking is that we're too individual in our reading of the Bible and our approach to life. And so all of these things that have just been said blow the gospel out from just being good news for me to being good news for the cosmos. And I think the next thing is the big gospel is a big gospel because it's not about me and it's not about you and it's not even just about us. The big gospel is actually about God about what God has done in the world. And when we say it's about God as Christians, when we say the creed every week, there's a reason we're doing that. It's because it's Trinitarian. I think often our gospel is reduced to just being about Jesus. But the big gospel, I think, recognises that God is at work in the gospel, in the Father sending the Son to make himself known, but also to restore a people for himself from exile into being his kingdom of priests again so that he might renew and transform the world through a recreated people who represent him and bring glory to him. And Jesus is the first of those. And so um, it's, it's about God the Father, but it's also about Jesus because it's him who reveals God to us as he goes to the cross, as he wins that victory over sin and death, and as he makes atonement as a sacrifice. But I think often our gospel retelling stops there. And so you get the Father and the Son in the mix But the New Testament sees the Spirit coming as the fulfilment of the Old Testament and the Father and Son pouring out the Spirit once Jesus is ascended to the heavens where he rules with the Father. And so I want the big gospel to recognise that part of the good news and part of how the good news becomes good news for me is that God sends the Spirit. And so in our tradition, you don't repent, you don't get united with Jesus and experience justification unless you are first united with Christ by the Spirit. And so I think more and more when we talk about the gospel, we should do the Acts 2 thing of seeing forgiveness of sins and the pouring out of the Spirit being the gospel and being the fulfilment of the Old Testament. 
and that helps us be Trinitarian. It also brings all that other stuff into play in terms of our union with Christ and our ability to, um, as we become like Jesus, be disciples and make disciples. Uh, and the last thing I just wanted to pick up is the kind of cosmic aspect. The reconciliation of all things actually brings with it a, a calling for us as recreated people to live in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth and to be ambassadors of heaven, to recognise that our position because we've got the spirit in us is that we're raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly realm already and our lives now are kind of as agents of that new creation. So the big gospel comes with a slightly different calling to just preach that Jesus saves sinners. It's to live and proclaim the kingdom as it will come and Jesus at the, the heart of that on the throne, which is what we saw in Revelation. So that'd be if I was asked the big gospel, I'd want to kind of blow it out to make it cosmic. I'd want to make it more about God than about us. And I'd want to recognise how often we reduce the gospel to just being good news for me and how that reduces the scope of the Christian life a bit. And, and this can give a fuller expression to what we're made and remade for. Um, I think this brings us right back to Hugo's question at the very start. Um, God is not just the boss of Sunday mornings at church. God is not just the boss of my life even. God is the boss of everything, not even just everything on earth, everything that ever has been, everything that ever will be. Excellent. Well, thank you, panellists, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, this was a bit of a, a trial exercise. We've got two more. Uh, if you've got questions that have come up in today's uh, Q&A and you want to send them through, feel free to send them through. If you've got questions about anything else, the rough guide is that next week we'll be dealing with uh, more kind of theological, a bit more abstract questions about the nature and character of God and, and kind of pushing into some questions about how we live as people if God is like that. And then week three is really about relationships, particularly how we care for one another well and particularly how we live uh, in a world where there's lots of broken relationships and hard things. But your questions don't have to be in those themes. We'll have uh, good people to answer just about anything you can throw at us.